If you have a Bible, the purpose that I'm here, first and foremost, is, uh, is to teach something this morning. I want to take you to, take you to a text that's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. James gave me some freedom to come up with what I wanted to today, but in talking to him, just told me that you've come through a spiritual gift series, and, and so you have a bit of a, a freedom as we transition to the next series, and, and maybe you wouldn't mind addressing this however you want to, this particular topic, and I said, well, what do you, what do you think if I go here? And he said, that would be great, and so that's what leads us to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let me read the first 10 verses, and then I'll press pause, pray, and start walking through it with you. Paul, the writer, begins, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray together. And so, Father, now we enter, we enter this, this great word, a challenging word too, but, but, but great in its challenge. Um, and I pray, I pray that I would be a, a servant today to this ministry, to encourage and to edify, to build up, uh, maybe to call out um, what, whatever needs to take place today. I, I just pray that I would fulfill uh, what you've called me to do. And I pray for all of us. This is a text that not only is one that, that you've given me to preach, but also to, to listen to and to learn from. And so I thank you that you've taught me this week. Um, but please continue to teach me in the midst of this group and this gathering of this great ministry today. I, I pray that your spirit would rest on us, move in us. I pray against distractions in the work of our enemy who loves to kill and destroy and snatch good seed out of out of soil, so I pray against him, and, and I pray that we would leave here um, encouraged and strengthened further along in our walk with you, so that as we go back into the places where you put us uh, in this part of the city, that we would be change agents, ambassadors, faithful to the task at hand, and what a task it is. So guide us, I pray, for the glory of your name and our joy. Amen. So it's really difficult to drop in almost to the end of a letter. In fact, 
the end of two letters. So let me give you a little bit of context before we dive into these 10 verses. We know Paul's the writer, but what's going on that leads to these, to these verses? Well, the fact of the matter is, believe it or not, Paul is being challenged by this church. In a sense, what all of the second letter to the Corinthian church is about is Paul proving himself, responding to this request from this church to, 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 to prove himself to them. Again, believe it or not, I mean, Paul is the planter of the Corinthian church, but they've come to him by way of a letter, I guess, or maybe it was somebody that came to him personally, and, and they're questioning him. They're, they're questioning his abilities. Paul. Again, the guy who planted this church. But from their perspective, he doesn't look the part, at least in their eyes. He doesn't look the part, doesn't act the part, doesn't speak well, those types of things. And so what they're calling Paul to do is, Paul, give us your resume, man. Boast a little bit about yourself. Well, the question is, before we dive into this text coming out of this, is, well, what has led to this? Why would a church planted by an individual double back on him? And again, it's Paul. Why would they double back on him and ask him to prove himself? Well, two things, two overarching reasons lead to this. One is an external reason. One is an internal reason. Let me give them to you one at a time. The external reason leading to this to this bold ask on, the on behalf of the Corinthians is, was the culture of Corinth at the time. Uh, to put it simply, at this point in history, it was great to be a Corinthian. Things were going well in Corinth. There was great freedom there. There was independence. And it was all coupled with this bullish economy. You could make a buck in Corinth. Tied to this, however, was this strong value, a core value, if you like, in the city placed on making a name for yourself. So you bring it all together. That's the culture of Corinth. There's a, an individual who's written on this, a pastor, pastor, author, theologian, historian by the name of Tim Savage. He states the, the following. You can read it on the screen behind me. In Corinth at this time, Perhaps more than anywhere else, social ascent was the goal, boasting and self-display was the means, and personal power and glory the reward. And so what has taken place is that culture in the city had now infiltrated the church, which again, I think it makes sense, because if you start attracting people from the city, they're going to bring their values with them, and that's what's taken place. That's the external reason. The internal reason is the penetration of what Paul refers to as super apostles. The, these individuals that had made their way into the church, if it's not on the screen, you can look at, look at these verses with me just to the chap, uh, chapter to the left. Paul refers to them in chapter 11. When writing, first of all, in, in chapter 11, verse 5, indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these quote-unquote super apostles. Adding a few verses later in verses 12 and 13, and what am I, and what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So those are the two reasons. External internal, you bring this all together, and the result is this letter. 
It, it leads to this letter, as I just mentioned to go, with Paul being called to boast about himself. And so he does. But, but what he boasts of are, are things that you and I probably wouldn't. What he boasts of, in fact, are things that would have shocked the Corinthian people. I'll show you what I mean in just a little bit, but before going there, if you're one who likes to take notes, I'm going to feature three items from this text that we're going to build this sermon on. It's kind of the trellis of the text. So let's, let's build this sermon on three features that will allow us to unpack these ten verses. Let's begin with the first. The first feature that I want to highlight is the problem with vision. You probably picked it up, if you look at the first six verses, you probably picked it up as I read through it, that our, that our text begins with, with Paul being recorded as writing in this sort of weird third-person sort of way. He, he speaks of, of visions and revelations coming to this individual who had experienced what was taking place recorded here 14 years earlier. Now, we know this is Paul referring to himself in third person because of what he writes in verse 7. Look at verse 7 one more time, writing there, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh and so forth. So what Paul is doing in these six verses is he's referring to himself about these visions and revelations, which sound wonderful, don't they? P Paul writes about being caught up into what he calls the third heaven. He's, he writes of that in verse 2, and then in verse 3, he uses this synonymous ter term there to speak of paradise. I was caught up into paradise. I was, I was caught up into the third heaven where he heard things, as he records in verse 4, that man may not utter. Can you imagine? When I read this, my mind goes to situations and places and people like Daniel. My mind goes to Isaiah 6. My mind goes to Ezekiel. My mind goes to John as you fast forward to the book of Revelation. John writes in Revelation 4.1 of seeing a door standing open into heaven and he's invited in. It, it seems that that was taking place here. It's so wondrous an experience for Paul that he doesn't even know if he was there physically or not. He writes, only God knows. John writes of his experience in Revelation 1 of being in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Maybe that's what's happened with Paul here too, but regardless, this is great. I mean, this is fantastic. However you look at it, Paul literally had a heavenly experience. He, he perhaps is referring to this same experience at the book of, in the beginning of the book of Galatians when writing, and again, you can see this on the screen behind me, writing in Galatians 1, 11, and 12, for I would have, have you know, brothers, sisters, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So we see this word revelation. Perhaps, again, this is a reference to a, a similar or the exact same revelation that he talks about in 2 Corinthians 12. This is mind-blowing. So what's the problem? 
I mean, if this is so great, these visions and revelations, what's the problem? Well, there are two that Paul highlights. The first is the problem of conceit. We're going to laser in on thorns in just a moment, but Paul mentions again, if you look back to verse 7, he mentions in verse 7 that a thorn was given to him to keep him from becoming conceited because of the visions and the revelations. We get this, don't we? I mean, I mean at least I do. If, if I had this same experience, like if I went to the third heaven in, in paradise, I would get so cocky. I mean, I would probably start like third heaven ministry, something like that, you know what I mean? Like write books, the 10 things I saw in paradise, right? Those kinds of things. Maybe start a television, like a TV station, like the Vision Network, right? It's already been taken, right? That, I mean, we get this. I mean, we would be an app. Can you imagine, can, can you imagine me at a dinner party if you get that cocky? You know, Nancy and I, we just went to Barbados. Oh, is that right? You ever been to the third heaven? <laughs> right? You ever been to the third? Uh, I have. Whether in the body or, you know, out. Who knows? God knows. I'd like to tell you about it, but I can't. Right? That, that's me. That's what Paul, that's what Paul, and he said, look, this, this, revela- this vision was so great, but to keep me from becoming conceited because of it. A thorn was given me. That's one problem with this. That's the one, it's one major problem, but there's another. The other is that grand things like this earn unmerited favor. I take this out of verse 6. Look at verse 6 one more time. He writes, Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it. Why, Paul? Why do you refrain? Why do you keep yourself from talking about it? Here's his answer. So that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or he hears from me. There's his answer. In other words, I don't want your view of me to come because of this. I want your view of me to come because of my life and what I teach. Not not my experiences, however great this one is. And man, is this relevant today, is it not? We, We live in Corinthian times, don't we? I mean, character, integrity, humility, not so important if you've done something great. You made a boatload of money, you built an empire, you grew a huge church, got a lot of followers. That's That's what matters, right? Again, we get this. We see it all around us. But the thing is, we have to be careful, careful before we point too many fingers out there because aren't we all prone to this? I mean, you just came out of a series on spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts can lead to to this. Where where grand gifts that people have, even if there's no character and humility, we focus on the gift. 
Every single one of God's gifts of grace, whether they're spiritual gifts or other gifts of grace like success, fruit, money, education, and so on, regardless of size and scope, come with these possible dangers attached. And and our call is to be aware of them and to fight against them. To, to refrain, to use the, the adage of Paul, to, to succumbing to them and just highlighting them and going, look, this proves who I am. And Paul says, no, nah, I don't want that. I, I want to be known by my life and my teaching. And when I read this, when I was prepping this week, at this point in my prep, my mind immediately went to the qualifications of elders. What are the qualifications of elders? Well, essentially, they come down to character and home life. Those are the qualifications. Not successes, not businesses built, not ministries started, even the size of gift you have, but personal integrity and godliness that fleshes itself out publicly and privately, and that's what Paul wants to be known for. That's his desire. That's to be our desire. You see, the qualifications of elders are not exclusive to elders. They just have to have them. But all of us need to pursue the same thing. I want to be known for my walk with Jesus. I want to be known for what comes out of my mouth. Not even third heaven experiences are to be things that get in the way of that. I want to be known for that. Which is why he begins writing in third person. You see, what Paul does, what he's doing, he wants to distance himself from that version of himself. The one prone to conceit and unmerited favor. And notice... Put your eyes back in the text. I want you to notice it because it's so sweet. When does Paul begin talking in first person again? When he begins talking about his weaknesses. Don't miss that. When he begins talking about his thorn, which brings us to our second feature that we're hanging this message on. So feature number one, the problem of visions. Feature number two, the purpose of thorns. Two that we see from our text. What are the purpose? What is the purpose of thorns? They bring humility and they call us to trust. Ne- neither word, just so you know, is used in these 10 verses, but the sense of both is all over this. In light of the possibility of unmerited favor and conceit, just look at it one more time with me. Paul writes in the middle of verse 7, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. What is that? Well, you need to know that a lot of ink has been spilt over this half a verse. A lot. Lots of ideas over what this thorn is, but their guesses at best. But whatever it is, what we know for sure is that it humbled Paul. And that's the role it's to serve. 
to use his language, it kept him, whatever this thorn was, it kept him from becoming conceited. And I appreciate Paul's transparency. I appreciate that. I appreciate that Paul, Paul had a tendency towards conceit and pride and bravado because of what he had experienced. I, I like this, actually. It, it gives me a sense of, hey, you know what? Maybe I'm not alone in this. Maybe we're not alone in this. And so it was given to him for that reason. But, but here's, here's what I don't want us to miss most of all in this. And I've, I've said the word a number of times and we've read it here. This, this thorn was given to him. Huh. By whom? The answer is by God. If you're thinking of Job chapter 1 and the first half of Job chapter 2, I think you're thinking right. I think if your mind goes there, thinking about that scenario with Job and God and Satan and all of that, I, th I think you're on the right track. I think what we have here is God's allowance under his sovereign rule for the harassment of Paul in the flesh by way of a messenger of Satan. I think that's what we have here. Now, I say it's given by God because as we see in verse 8, Paul prays three times. And I don't think they were just simply pray, amen, pray, amen, pray, amen. I don't know what it looked like. Seasons of prayer, maybe coupled with fasting, maybe bringing the community around him. I don't know. We just know that he lasers in on three times, three times of prayer for God to remove it, but he doesn't. Not because he can't, but because he won't. Who does this remind you of? Who, who else do we know who prayed to God three times for the removal of something? Exactly. Jesus three times prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. This is Paul's Garden of Gethsemane moment. And here's the thing, sure. We all have garden moments where God says no. I've given you this. And I know you want it removed, but I'm saying no. What I'm about to say is going to challenge some of us, but we need to hear it nonetheless. As much as the visions and revelations of the Lord were a gift of God, so too was the thorn. A gift because it was being used to display the glory of God and used to further Paul's effectiveness and Christ-likeness. Which is why he boasts of it more than he boasts of the visions and revelations. 
It's why he goes third person there and first person here. It's why he says in verse 10, for the sake of Christ then, for his sake, I am content with my weaknesses. If this makes much of Jesus, I'm good with it. This is, this is meat Christianity, what we're seeing here. This is not milk. This is meat stuff. This, this challenges our love for Christ and what's most important to us. Can we say, for the sake of Christ then, I'll take the thorn. For the sake of Christ then, I'm good with weakness. For the sake of Christ, is that our life? Your life, my life. I want to live whatever it means, whatever it takes for the sake of Christ. Thorns can come in a lot of shapes and sizes, can't they? They can come by way of physical ailments, financial difficulty. They can come by age relational strife, character shortcomings, familial history, persistent temptation, ongoing, you want it gone and it doesn't leave and it harasses you again and again and again, that same one. It can come in your very physiological and psychological makeup. It can come by way of your past. A past that that you've moved on from, a past that you've been forgiven from, but there's this cluster of people in your life who won't let you forget about it, and it harasses you. Now, I'm not saying that, that the things that we encounter are all the direct result of a messenger of Satan, but I am saying that those things that harass us, that keep us humble and trusting, are God's gift to us as much as anything else. So I ask the obvious question. What's your thorn? What's harassing you now? Some, some thorns last a lifetime. Some thorns come and go. So what's your thorn? What's mine? What's keeping you and me, you and me humble and rightly so? What's moving us to trust all the more? Paul speaks of this idea of going through a time of affliction leading to a, a necessary time of teaching for him. This again will be on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Paul, Paul writes, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that, that sentence of death, was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who who raises the dead, to trust in him, to trust in him. I've said this many times over the years, but one of the worst teachings in the church today is that God will give us, won't give us, excuse me, anything beyond the ability that we can handle. Of course he will. Why wouldn't he? He gives us things again and again and again. Why? So that we won't rely on ourselves. 
but trust in the one who raises the dead. Why is that so necessary? Because what Paul writes here in Galatians 1 will be all of the end of our days. When our eyes are closing for the last time, what must we trust? A God who raises the dead. All of us will be led to this place. And that trust in smaller ways is part of our life now. We will encounter things. I want it gone, God. No. No. This is for your humility. This is, this is so that you will run to me. So, so what have we seen thus far? Well, thus far we've considered the problem with visions, right? conceit being one of them, unmerited favor being the other, the purpose of thorns, humility and trust. There's one feature left. This last feature that our message hangs on is the, the power in weakness. Take a look at verses 9 and 10 just one more time, if you don't mind. Paul writes, But he, God, said to me, My grace is sufficient, is, uh, sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, these things that Paul is boasting of are absolutely upside down in what the Corinthian church wanted from him. See, we sometimes read through the sufferings and trials of Paul and go, well, he's kind of boasting because if somebody came back to, to tell me that they were following Christ and they were going through sufferings and trials and tribulations, I would be going, that's awesome. That's not what the Corinthians were thinking. They saw that as weak. They saw, saw that as you being a failure. It would be like being in a, a health, wealth, and prosperity church and, and having cancer and being broke. That's not a good thing. You're lacking faith. God's obviously against you. If you're following God in faith, you're not going to suffer. Go through trials and tribulations. Only the opposite. But what does Paul do instead? He, he boasts about his weaknesses. If you read through the book of 2 Corinthians, he boasts about afflictions and sufferings. He boasts about his lack of eloquence. He boasts about his limited resources. He boasts about his menial job. They wanted him to take a salary. He says, I'm not taking a salary. So what did he do? Made tents in the marketplace. What, what are you doing? Can you imagine going down to Earl's and your waiter comes up to you and it's Tim Keller? You're like, what the heck? What are you doing here? Why, why are you working at Earl's? Not that Earl's is bad. Earl's is great. But what are you doing here? Well, I don't want to rely on... On, on, on you. I want to I do this. You hold nothing against me. That's what he was doing. You'd be going, what you, that's beneath you. Right? We'd think that. And that's Paul's point. I'm boasting in these things so that the power of Christ rests on me. I don't know who said it, I wrote it down, but I, I didn't record who, who wrote it, but he or she says, radically, Paul embraced the very things the Corinthians rejected. 
identifying these weaknesses as signs of his true apostleship. See, please hear what, what this writer is saying about Paul. Paul is saying the third heaven experience doesn't validate me. My weaknesses do. My sufferings do. My afflictions do. As he says at the end of the book of Galatians in Galatians 6, he says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Don't, don't hassle me anymore. The scars on my back validate me. It's wondrous. And again, notice why Paul is glad to boast of his weaknesses. He answers in verse 9, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In a sense, what Paul is saying is his weaknesses were the sources of his power. For it was through his weaknesses that God, in his grace grace and the strength of his might, worked. And so Paul boasted of, of them and gladly. Power to do what exactly? Well, big long list, but let me just give you some really quickly. Power to love with a, a divine love. Power to witness in a supernatural, supernatural way. Power to resist sin and temptation. Power to do immeasurably more than he could think or imagine. And that power is ours too. And it comes by boasting in our weaknesses. As I make a turn for home in this in this. In this message and with you, let me very briefly address the question of what it means to boast in our weaknesses. What does it mean? Well, what it doesn't mean is woe is meism. It doesn't mean false humility. It, it doesn't mean that we don't recognize our calls and our giftings too. What it means is a recognition of our weaknesses and an ongoing commitment to fight against self-reliance by way of our gifts or experience or whatever. What, what it also means is that we don't hide those weaknesses from one another. Why would we? Confessing our weaknesses is not merely about pointing out our lack, but rather magnifying God's power that rests on us. As Paul emphasizes earlier in the same letter, and it's on the screen again behind me, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So we boast in our weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on us. But as I wrap up, there's, there's one other reason why we do as well. We, we boast in our weaknesses because it is the way of Christ. One final verse from Paul, it's how he ends things off in, in the last chapter of 2 Corinthians. But in verse 4, he, he writes this. For Jesus was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. Think about that statement. We are weak in Christ. 
But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. You see, I, I remind you that we follow a savior who in his weakness stumbled to the cross. That we follow a savior derided as he died in our place. Like that's our master. That, that we follow a savior who didn't merely have a thorn given, but wore a crown of them. He's our Lord. But glory be to God. For it was by the way of our Savior's weaknesses that Satan was defeated. And death was destroyed. And we bought and paid for power in weakness. That's the way of Christ. And that's to be our way too. So there you go. That's the problem with visions. That's the purpose of thorns. And that's the power that comes in weakness. And so as I close and we go into a time of response, I ask, what are your Corinthian tendencies? What are mine? What, what are you boasting in now, but should be, should, should be boasting of instead? What needs to become a little more third person? And, and what needs to be a little more first person? What, what weaknesses have been given to you for Christ's sake while calling you to humility and trust? And I would guess as well, as I lead into a time of prayer, that there are some of you right now that are praying for that removal of, of that thorn. Like you're in that garden right now whatever that thorn is. And, and, and at least up to this point, God has said, no. Here's, here's what you need to remember as we respond. God tells us no at times, but he never sends us away empty-handed. When we go to his mercy seat, in times of need, he always sends us away with grace. Grace to help in the time of need. And as Paul states here, quoting God himself, my grace is sufficient for you. It's sufficient. So be encouraged as you continue to go back to him that you will always receive from him. Always. Always. So let me pray. Uh, Spirit of God, I, I know the, the, the weight of this message on my life personally and the challenge that it is, is to me. Um, and I would assume that it's, it's a weight for some, perhaps many here as well. Um, please give us more faith. Increase our faith. 
Help us. This world is full of so many trials and tests and tribulations. So help us. For the sake of your name, Jesus, help us, please. And Father, as we come to you, we trust. We trust that the, the seat that your son sits on is a seat of mercy. We trust in the promise. We claim the promise that when we come to you, our faithful and sympathetic high priest, that you'll give us grace to help in the time of need. Maybe grace, just enough grace to get us through today, but that's good enough. We get up in the morning, we receive new mercies tomorrow. So help us. I pray for those that are discouraged, hurting right now, that they're dealing with things. Perhaps they're dealing with things that have been around a long time, maybe even a lifetime. Oh, oh God, I pray. I pray for them. I pray that our love for you, Jesus, would increase and increase and increase so that whatever we go through, if it glorifies your name more, we're good with it. Help us, though. Help us. We're very fallible, weak, faint-hearted individuals, so help us, I pray. 